Hey, this is Jeff Lewis from Radio Andy. Live and uncensored, catch me talking with my friends about my latest obsessions, relationship issues, and bodily ailments. With that kind of drama that seems to follow me, you never know what's going to happen. You can listen to Jeff Lewis live at home or anywhere you are. Download the SiriusXM app for over 425 channels of ad-free music, sports, entertainment, and more. Subscribe now and get three months free. Offer details apply. And we're back with an all-new episode of Keep It. You know who's not back? Beto O'Rourke. He's gone. Bye-bye, Beto. <laughs> he skateboarded on out of here with the rest of the Burger King Kids Club. <laughs> you have been very into the Burger King Kids Club this week. Icons. Oh, I did see those tweets. Yes, icons. I did see those tweets. So what prompted this? The, my interest in the Burger King Kids Club? Yes. It's longstanding. And, re- and remind people of what it is. Yeah. So, like, in the 90s, there were Burger King mascots to reel in children in, mm-hmm. <laughs> into a life of, I guess, obesity. I don't know. But they were, like, rad children who all wore athletic gear, basically. One was in a wheelchair. One was a skateboarder. You know, one was the smart one. And I happened to notice they actually all look and dress like lesbians. It's really shocking. <laughs> wow. Uh, I remember the Burger King Kids Club. Yeah. No, yeah. I was like a Burger King kid, mm-hmm. which my friends have mocked me about. Really? When did fast food restaurants stop trying to appeal to children? I they, know. They don't do it anymore. Like the Happy Meal is sort of a, uh, has old school cachet yeah. now, you know? I feel like there was a point when they had to stop because it was like fast food is too bad for yeah, kids. Yeah, it's conspicuous. Child. Yeah. I miss the hamburger. Oh, I do, yeah. I do miss yeah. the hamburger. I do miss the hamburger. I miss the, the prison that used to be at McDonald's. You know, mm-hmm. the burger that you could get inside with the bars. Oh, that was um, uh, that was literally my favorite thing. They Like, advertising yeah. works. I was into that. I really <laughs> haven't seen Nary a play place at right. all. Where are they at? Also, the amount of um, static shock you would get in a play place. Mm-hmm. You would crawl in and fully come out looking like the Bride of Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of the... Popeye's chicken is back, which is uh, and people are dead. I know it's like uh, our Mally's comet. A man Stop. was stabbed Stop. to death. Oh wait, is that true? Yes, yes a man was died. stabbed to death. Just in the queue. Two men were waiting in line outside a Maryland Popeye's when one of the men accused the other of cutting in front of him in line, and they got into a fight, and one of the men stabbed the other one. To death. Oh my goodness. Which I know everyone wants to blame the Popeye's chicken sandwich fervor, but people who cut in line should be killed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's the logical endpoint here. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Well, that's imagine dying over four dollars. Also, two two dollar bills. That's sixteen quarters. We can all agree that the sandwich exceeds expectations. It does. I've never had it. it. But would we not agree? It's not the greatest chicken sandwich of all time. No. So where are we coming from with violence? I'd rather be homophobic and eat at Chick Fil A than dead at Popeyes. (laughs) Right. Just exactly. (laughs) I'm gonna I'm gonna start postmating. Postmate and Chick-fil-A oh, tonight. Me. Exclusively. You should get that stitched on a pillow. That's a proverb <laughs> I want to remember. Yes. Uh, I will not be having Chick-fil-A tonight. I'm sick. Mm-hmm. Oh, are you? Yeah, which is why I sound like Kathleen Turner. Oh, yeah. None she, of these places have a chicken sexy. soup. True, true. Yeah, sultry. None of these places have a chicken soup. 
Do they? Wow. Where's Popeye's chicken, chicken oh. soup? Popeye's chicken soup. We need the chicken soup. There we go. And yes. it's, but it's fried chicken soup. So that's it. Is that chicken soup for the stab to death soul? <laughs> oh my there should be an old Jewish Burger King <laughs> kids club that like sells you chicken soup at Burger yeah. King. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, we were talking about better. Is that it? Oh, yeah. yeah. But have you seen him? That was as that was as interesting as his campaign. <laughs> have you seen him since he quit? We have a fun episode. We finally lured Ronan Farrow to the podcast. I'll be honest, it wasn't that hard. He was just sort of in the building and we threw a nut on him. (laughs) (laughs) He's easy to catch. Right. Who knew? Black Cube. (laughs) You should let me join. (laughs) Also, we're going to talk about Apple TV Plus and the show everyone is talking about, The Morning Show. Then we're going to talk about Martin Scorsese. And his op-ed in the New York Times. And his big ideas. We are still fighting about Marvel movies. We'll be right back. Apple TV launched last Friday with the highly anticipated, was it? Well, it was certainly expensive. Is that what you meant? Yes. Uh, the highly expensive Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon joint, The Morning Show. Basically, people have been reporting for months on how expensive this show is and about all of the turmoil behind scenes. And we've all been wondering, what is Apple TV actually going to look like? Mm-hmm. Now it's here. The Morning Show is here. And some other shows. What do we think? Um, so I watched the pilot of The Morning Show. What about this premise even attracted them? Who cares about the backstage goings-on at a talk show? For one thing, I just feel like that's sort of an old topic. But secondly, it's a show that keeps trying to earn its own seriousness. So a Matt Lauer-like host, who is played by Steve Carell, is ousted from the Today's Show after a Me Too-esque allegation. And basically... His co-host, Jennifer Aniston, and then this up-and-comer played by Reese Witherspoon from the Deep South, who may or may not be elevated to the show, are just constantly reacting in Sorkin-esque bursts of anger at what's happening. And that already doesn't scan to me because veterans in this business would not react that way. The people around them would react that way. Mm -hmm. But these people all feel like cartoon characters to me, at least in the first episode. And Steve Carell has a scene where he destroys a TV set in a scene that would be melodramatic in a 1940s Betty Davis movie. (laughs) (laughs) He'd be danced to death. Right. (laughs) And written on the wind, yes. I had the same reaction. I feel like none of the characters feel like real people who are in the news. All these speeches about what will America think. We have to hold America's hand. I'm like, I really don't think that Jennifer Aniston would care about this shit. Yeah, Not that much. Correct. And I also think that the weight and importance being added onto a morning talk show is insane to me. Yeah. It works in Sorkin shows somewhat because it didn't really work in the newsroom. But the West Wing, you know, because it's politics. We're talking about life and death. This is a morning talk show. And the speeches... The monologues are out of control. And let me just say, we are the crew that wants a monologue. 
Yes, I love a monologue. Please, no. You should always be complaining about how hot it is in a late 50s Tennessee Williams story. <laughs> I only got about halfway through the, the episode. I just lost interest. Only because I was like, is this supposed to lean dark comedy? Are they trying to do a high drama thing? It felt so contrived. And I know, okay, this is Apple's first show, whatever they want it to be, their big flagship show. But they have the resources. They've put in the resources, but I don't know if they have the ability to make what they're trying to make. It feels fake. I think that's part of the problem. You know, Apple's VP in charge of its TV strategy told audiences at South by Southwest in 2018, we don't know anything about making television. We know how to create apps. We know how to do distribution. We know how to market. But we don't really know how to create shows. And it seems like Apple TV has entered the streaming wars, as we're calling it, just because they can. Sure. Just because why not have content? And Apple TV Plus is free if you purchased a new device recently, Mm -hmm. which means it's also just there as an impetus to get people to buy more Apple devices. So it feels really weird talking about Apple TV shows in any real context because it doesn't even seem like they're making TV for TV's sake. Right. Yeah. Between that quote that you just read and what we talked about Benioff and Weiss last week, it's like, what are you guys doing? Why are you making stuff we didn't ask for? Why are you trying to play catch up in streaming wars when you are Apple? You can make like Apple holograms and I would watch that shit way before I watched any TV show that you made. Apple, you have so much capabilities. Steve Jobs is rolling over in his grave. Also, um, it's a show, the morning show. This happens a lot with movies that are cheap that have one star in them. You're almost watching the talent on top of the TV show, like Mm -hmm. them trying to be good without having any material. Like Mm -hmm. Jennifer Aniston, there's just something about her that I don't want to say oozes just relatability, but like there's a particular character to her always, and she always brings that, and it's dependable, and it's always fun to watch. But she has to pair it with a character who is way too outraged and way too who who seems way too green given how much of a veteran in the business she is so it's like watching a very talented person compensate for a script that just isn't giving her that much believable character to begin with she's a character who's supposed to be very adamant and heartfelt about the news and what she's delivering to america and sort of on the side of justice and yet she also is flippant in the first scene when she doesn't know something and she says, what am I, a fucking PA from Ohio? Mm -hmm. So you also don't respect the people who work under you. So what is the actual story? Right. Well, that's like their version of making her complex, right? Like on screen, she has all these values, Mm -hmm. but off screen, she thinks Steve Carell really fucked up her career. Off screen, she fucked Steve Carell. (laughs) (laughs) Right, that's true. Which is another thing, too. The morning show is supposedly about the Me Too movement. And everything about it is so muted and so neutered. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it's about Steve Carell's character being fired for sexual misconduct, supposedly modeled after Matt Lauer. Yeah. But it doesn't go to the extreme of Matt Lauer. This is, he had sex with subordinates. He's a not that bad type. He's a not that bad Me Too. And so... What are we supposed to be rooting for here? Yeah. For like, oh, yes, we're rooting for him to get his job back because he only had sex with subordinates, which then means are we supposed to be rooting for that in real life? 
Also, I have like two big grievances with the show, I think, now that I'm reflecting on it more, is that they are framing the Me Too story as an entirely white story, like it's an all-white mm. cast. You're not succession. It's not a family line. You don't get to be all-white. Cast <laughs> someone of color. Two, this show is the logical show that would be made in America after the Me Too situation is, what are the work implications of this? Rather than what are the real-life implications of the Me Too movement? Who are the women that were affected by this? Mm -hmm. You know, those aren't the stories. Those are already the stories that we're trying to make sure don't get heard. We as in, like, America, not us. But, yeah, I don't care what happens to a Matt Lauer type. The women already weren't front and center, at Mm -hmm. least in the pilot. And it feels, like you said, Aida, like something that would be made now, it feels like a bad play that would be thrown up mm-hmm. uh, in the midst of it with, with three stars on Broadway having monologues about the Me Too movement that really don't go anywhere. And speaking of stars, though, Reese Witherspoon in this plays a character who, first of all, you definitely already knew she could play this character because it's that she gives you that feral Southern, um, if you ever saw her in the movie Freeway, for example, it's sort of in that tone of like a, a firecracker type who goes off. She's Sour Home, Alabama. There you, if you will, if you will. And unfortunately, she has a rant that goes viral where she's like screaming at her crew in West Virginia. The rant is so stupid, no one would ever care to hear it. I hate it when like things try, like in The Big Sick, when Kumail Nanjiani's bad comedy set goes viral. It's like, no, it wouldn't. Yeah. I hate it when people guess what the internet would do and it just seems like a bunch of grown-ups trying to figure out outrage culture and mm-hmm. missing. I, like, that always upsets me. And in this, her rant does not feel justified as a viral phenomenon, one. But two, Reese has to overplay this kind of gigantically angry character and it is one of her worst performances in the past five years. If you saw Hot Pursuit couple years ago with Sofia mm-hmm. Vergara. It is that level. I cried wow. during Hot Pursuit. Okay, well, you have a disorder because what I is watched that? It, I watched it on a plane and I was four gin and tonics in. Okay, it wasn't enough. <laughs> you, you shouldn't have lived through it. Yeah. I absolutely agree about the entire viral video. So the video goes viral and then Jennifer Aniston's character, that relates to you, Lewis, saying that she seemed too green because what kind of reporter on a morning show is going to be so annoyed with Reese Witherspoon where she's like, and we all know this video was faked, right? Like, she just seems too angry at Reese Witherspoon's character. She seems too unprofessional in how she interacts with her, and none of it makes any sense. Right, nobody feels like a real adult. Yeah, for the cost of the show, the character should have a little bit more nuance. Yeah, right. Do they pay for the script? (laughs) I guess not. <laughs> By the way, and you do know that, so uh, for this show, Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon were allegedly paid $2 million an episode. What? Which would make them, I think, the highest per episode earners in TV history. Do you know who would be um, second, third, and fourth? Jennifer Aniston and Friends, $1 million? She's a little bit further down the list, okay. but it was $1 million. Okay. You're right. There's I'm pretty a- sure it's Kaylee Cuoco. Kaylee Cuoco is, let's see if I can find her way down this list. I think she, they're somewhere down here. The The other top earners are Charlie Sheen for Two and a Half Men. How 1. much? 1.8 million. For what? Uh, LOL. <laughs> I mean, it certainly wasn't Emmy wins. Um, Ray Romano and Everybody Loves Raymond. Mm. He won one okay. time. That's true. I was thinking And Kelsey women. Grammer. I yeah. was thinking women. Sorry. That's, oh, that's yeah. why I went to Kaylee Cuoco. Oh, Because I know, I, I'm pretty sure after Big Bang Theory, she was the current highest paid woman in television. Um, the Game they, of Thrones ladies are up there. They yeah. made so much money on that show that 
I watched every episode of, but we don't have to talk about that. Uh, <laughs> of Big Bang Theory? Yes. Oh, you watched God. every episode of that? I love Big Bang Theory. Oh, okay, let's move immediately on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, boss baby. <laughs> okay. Um, for two million an episode, I don't give a shit how the show turns out. Look, I don't care. If yeah. it's good, bad, whatever, I'm collecting my check and I'm leaving. Uh, no, so. I do respect it on that level. It just seems crazy what they spent it on outside of those actresses. For instance, there's just like a depressive sheen over the whole show. Mm. It reminds me a little bit of, have you ever seen HBO's Divorce? Yes. Where it's just, there's just a feeling of dourness over the whole thing mm-hmm. and then no ability to earn that. Mm-hmm. You know who is actually very good in the show? Billy Crudup. Oh, Yeah. I like him. And I'm still mad at him after, we'll talk about this with Ronan, Jackie. Yes. I hated that character, but Mm. yeah. Well, I really like Billy Crudup in this show, and I feel like maybe the better, more succession-ish show would be, here's like a producer who really doesn't give a fuck Mm -hmm. and has to deal with this Me Too thing, Mm -hmm. and maybe the people around him are trying to make him give a fuck. That might be more interesting and relatable. It's because it's about the people at the top who don't care. But this show, once again, is just, it's about the Me Too movement, but it has no bite. And it's not really about the Me Too movement either because they don't have the wherewithal to actually address anything that's happening it's not smart about it you don't like you don't come away with a new perspective on it it feels like glib conclusions about the me too movement Mm -hmm. as opposed to like explored lived in drama exactly and the morning show itself seems too self-serious yeah. Right, totally. Because everyone It's like, it's like around... the newsroom. Everybody said the newsroom but has brought up that show. But it does have that feeling of sanctimony and also people who are just cocaine raging at all hours. Right, because you know? yeah. in real life, the morning show would probably have Jennifer Aniston playing with dog catchers yeah. on it. <laughs> um, the, the viral, uh, my kids are listening to Kids Bop right. woman would be on that show. Right, like, right. Come on. Sometimes, sometimes morning news is serious, yes. Uh, it has a balance, but a lot of morning news is entertainment. Right. I'm going to give a shout out to queer black actor Deshaun Terry, who I hope will become a bigger presence in coming episodes. And also, you know who has a minor part in this? Belle Powley. Do you ever mm-hmm. see the movie Diary of a Teenage Girl? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, and Kristen Wiig played her mom. Mm-hmm. That is a startling-ass performance. You would never guess she was British from that movie, by the mm-hmm. way. So I hope she ends up taking over this whole fucking thing, too. Also, I'm hoping that Gugu Mbatha-Ra gets more to do in the show. And also, does it not seem like Gugu Mbatha-Ra, her role in this, is just like her role in Miss Sloan, yes. where she was tagging along with Jessica Chastain and her zany-ass monologues in that movie? <laughs> She loves walking around listening to white women talk. Right, yeah. She's you. Fly off the handle. (laughs) Wow. Uh, I mean, that's really all we can say about Apple TV, right? It's here. Did you see Dickinson? I saw a little bit of that. Mm -hmm. I saw a little bit of Dickinson. I didn't watch anything else. I reticent to say that I am close to maybe standing, but Dickinson is so bonkers that I feel like I'm at least interested in it. And at, at least that feels whoever was involved was interested in making a fun show. Like, there's at least a point of view, yeah, right? right, And what right. you want from TV, as opposed to the morning show, which feels calculated to appeal to every sort of demographic right. in the way this that sh- Apple TV products are. The morning show feels like a product, and it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like art, mm-hmm. which will... 
segue into our later conversation about Martin Scorsese. You are like Walter Cronkite. You run these airwaves with your crazy segues. <laughs> uh, anyway, we'll be right back with Ronan Farrow discussing his latest book, Catch and Kill. Keep It is brought to you by Hinge. Hinge is the dating app designed to be deleted. If you're really good at it, that is. I've actually met several really good friends through Hinge. I've used it, I can't believe this, over a decade now. Woof, what a life I've had. Well, you know what they've added within a decade of us being on Hinge is their new LGBTQIA plus prompts, which are designed to help queer daters better connect based on similarities, interests, and compatibility. Hinge Prompts helps you show off your full personality and connect with someone who appreciates you. Plus, these prompts were created in collaboration with GLAAD, so they are by the people, for the people. Some of the prompts are, the first time I knew I was gay was, mm, I was literally in the act of being gay, like hooking up with somebody when I admitted it. <laughs> Denial is strong and hard in the Catholic Midwest. Mine was Tom Cruise's Vanity Fair cover, the shirtless one. You just turned to an imaginary camera and said, I'm gay. Yeah. Or broke the fourth wall. <laughs> You're like Fleabag. Other prompts include, I feel proudest of who I am when. It feels affirming when others, blank. I connect to my community by. I wish I could tell the younger version of myself. I'm going to say, whenever I watch that in a drag race semifinal, when they're like, if I could talk to my younger self, I would say, I would be like, girl, get tighter clothes. I mean, what's going on with what you're wearing? You look like you're in the X Games. Other prompts include, my chosen family is the best at and gender euphoria looks like. Download Hinge and show off your full self using their LGBTQIA plus prompts today. Then find someone worth deleting the app for. Keep It is brought to you by Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. I was there. I remember. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children, like Dance Moms, the infamous Lifetime Network show where the studio owners screamed at children and their moms over several seasons. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Mm, they recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Well, we know that someone created the beast known as Jojo Siwa. <laughs> you think we see the, the, the lab workings that created Jojo Siwa? <laughs> yeah. One pigtail, two pigtails. <laughs> Uh, and Chemical X. <laughs> <laughs> Abby's biggest misstep actually wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Well, follow The Big Flop wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Jeff Lewis from Radio Andy. Live and uncensored, catch me talking with my friends about my latest obsessions, relationship issues, and bodily ailments. With that kind of drama that seems to follow me, you never know what's going to happen. You can listen to Jeff Lewis live at home or anywhere you are. Download the SiriusXM app for over 425 channels of ad-free music, sports, entertainment, and more. Subscribe now and get three months free. Offer details apply. Today we have a pretty lackluster guest. I understand. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're making do. You, you got to work with what you got. Uh, Ronan Farrow, 
Hi. Hi. Good to be here, guys. Hello, Ronan. Hi. Hi. Ronan, can I just say you are a hilarious person for me to know for a couple of reasons. One, <laughs> I, I take mean, that. Whenever I see you, it's like everybody's aware you are. You have a singular career. You are a very August presence, and yet we are both gay men. So all I want to do when I see you is be like, God, remember when your mom was in Death on the Nile? <laughs> I want to scream unimportant questions about your mother's career. At you. you know what? I will literally spend this entire episode talking about Death on the Nile if you want to. So Your we, mom we is a co-star be careful. Betty Davis. Careful what you ask for. Yeah. Angela Lansbury is in that movie. Yes. That is a like a big gay movie that people should pay more attention to. This is a question that I really want to ask, though, because I feel, I mean, we'll get into Catch and Kill and these serious questions after an hour of death <laughs> on the night yeah, right. but uh you know you're from you know like such a pop culture family you know so i wonder like what things do you like like what did you grow up on I, I like that gloss on the like turmoil and trauma of my youth. Fun, a fun pop culture upbringing, you could say that. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think the, the silver lining of all of that is I did grow up in a movie-loving family mm-hmm. and definitely was steeped in like pretentious old-school cinema. A lot of Turner Classics movies going on. Really? Mm-hmm. I Actually, that sort of surprises me. I thought you would have like branched out on your own and like not been into that stuff, but you were into oh, no, su- super into it. And, you know, my mom is a-, a lover of cinema and raised us on, like, Ingmar Bergman movies and, mm. you know, old school Hitchcock movies. And I developed a love of, like, paranoid thrillers from the 70s and kind of actually ended up uh, sinking up nicely with some of the insane stuff it, in I Catch mean, and it, Kill. It, it, it does book feel... is like reading Blowout. Yeah, yeah. You, 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 <laughs> yeah, you did live that. the parallax view. Yes. <laughs> Honestly, those movies are kind of what these events felt like at the mm-hmm. time. Well, and it's interesting uh, seeing it feel, you know, like like it's like fucking Three Days of the Condor or something because it's it's so engrossing. And I feel like what I really enjoy about the book is it puts a lot into the work that journalists have to do to uncover stories, you know? And I feel like, especially in an era now where, um, I don't know, I feel like they shoot journalists on the street now uh, in, under the Trump administration, it feels really nice to have this book, which is sort of, I feel like, respects the profession. Um, it feels a lot like, I mean, John mentions... Um, the insider in the book uh, when he's talking about you uncovering this stuff at NBC. And, you know, I'm thinking about the post and spotlight uh, and all the president's men. Chronicles of these sorts of things. Yeah. Well, what's unusual about this though is catch and kill is, I mean, as you say, it's kind of a love letter to journalists and journalism, but it's also in a lot of ways, not a, a journalism book Mm -hmm. in the sense of, most of the plot takes place outside of the newsroom. So it's not like the Post or Spotlight where it's about, you know, diligent reporters just cracking the story with committed editors behind them. It's kind of, you know, my producer and I have to go rogue and lose our jobs. And mm-hmm. um, one of the reasons I'm the target of this crazy international espionage plot is I'm a bit of a softer target because I'm doing my meetings outside without the backing of a news organization. And there's a, a portion of the plot where I'm you know, paying for my own camera crews and stuff. Yeah. Um, so that makes for a lot of scenes with noirish, rainy scene setting <laughs> and less scenes in the newsroom. It's a bit like Damages, to be honest. I remember when they created Damages on FX, they were like, this is a legal show, 
but we don't want any scenes in a courtroom. Right, but we're afraid to be a legal show. Yeah. That's, that's a little bit of that vibe there. I mean, I, I wish I could say that was a like just a boffo creative choice. It was, it was because my life sucked at that yeah. point, and I didn't have a news organization behind me. At any point, are you thinking, okay, maybe this isn't my axe to grind. Maybe this isn't my, my thing to fight. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, that struggle really runs through the whole plot that unravels, and... You know, there are people who I draw strength from and who make the space to do the wrong thing and take the money and run and take Mm -hmm. the easy way out um, smaller. And that's, you know, my working level producer, Rich McHugh at NBC, who becomes a whistleblower and goes public about the shutdown of the story and is extremely ethical at every point. And so that was a lot to live up to. And um, it's these incredibly brave women who spoke over and over again and put a lot on the line to make sure the story got out and that up to the ante and honestly it was people in my personal life like my mom and John you know there's a reason John Lovett is a big character in the book he was really fiercely principled about this stuff and um, you guys know him he's uh, <laughs> he's always spoiling for a fight so he's like you know screw the consequences just do the right thing the story is what counts um, and I put all of that in there as well as the temptation of not doing the right thing and not continuing with this kind of reporting that gets a lot of obstacles thrown at it Um, because I I hope for every other reporter that's in the same situation they're able to draw strength from their sources and people around them and keep going as well. I really appreciated the segment of the book where you sort of just put yourself out there about how you were sort of an adversary to your sister at one point um, when um, Dylan was you know putting her story out there about Woody Allen and you were sort of you revealed that you were like, maybe you should stop talking about this and sort of put a lot of us in the footsteps of so many people who just sort of experience these things in real life. Yeah. You know, I I think for anyone who has a loved one who has confronted these issues, you know that on top of everything else and all the ways in which it is painful for the survivor of sexual violence, it's also uh, something that creates a blast radius for those around them, and is inconvenient on top of everything else. You know, it's something people want to turn away from. And I was not always super principled about saying you should go for it. As you say, I I was very much the guy who I think is in so many survivors' lives saying, is this really worth it? Mm -hmm. And part of the evolution I go through over the course of the book is coming to understand that it really is worth it and that she was doing something courageous. Um, one thing that I was very interested in when I picked up this book, speaking of survivors confronting things. So after you wrote the giant Weinstein story, we all remember that moment in time where we all read it at the same time and everybody was talking about the multiple stories that were suddenly coming out. I think most people, when they think of investigative reporting, think of you write the story or you interview people, you gather research, you you sit with an editor who's saying things like, you know, you've really got something here, Ronan, or whatever, and then you publish it and then it's over. But in this case, the story was so extraordinary. It's like something we'll remember this generation by, you know, years from now. What is your responsibility as a reporter after this story comes out? Well, a number of things come into play. I, I kind of make clear there's this scene where I um, finally hit upload on the story and it's like it's really quiet it's very anticlimactic and it's extremely silent at the new yorker offices and david remnick the editor of the new yorker shoes people away who are like looking to take a picture because it's not our style we don't want to pat ourselves on the back and uh 
I, I think I actually I, I go to the Peggy Lee song of like is that all, all there is there to fire? Right, <laughs> right. Um, because this is a very queer book as it turns out. Uh, and, and then there was this this flood of you know just my phone erupting and computers erupting with every inbox filling up with more leads. And so two responsibilities that I hadn't really contemplated came into play rapidly. One of which was there was more to this particular story and I was already unraveling these clues about the spies on my tail and so forth. So it was clear there were going to be follow-up stories if the New Yorker would have them, which ultimately they did. Um, And then also it was clear that there was a responsibility to do right by some of these new leads coming in. Question about the spies. Uh, oh, yeah, know, right. The, the spies. Whole... <laughs> Minor characters in right? this thing. Yes. Uh-huh. The spies who did not love me. <laughs> uh, you know, the whole alias of it all. Is that something that... The like... whole alias of it all. Can I just put that as a pull quote on the paperback? <laughs> Please do. <laughs> uh, should we be worried about this kind of stuff all the time? You know, it's... I know throughout this you've talked about the Black Cube and, like, Harvey Weinstein, like having these people, you know, really just sort of intimidating witnesses and then intimidating you. And it just makes you think, like, what the fuck are these people up to next? You know, we have an administration now that would not do anything about that because you talk so much about how Trump is even involved in so much of this stuff. But it's like, would under a different government, we'd be like, should we be doing something about this? Is there something that the government or any of us can really do. So part of the the plot of the book, which extends up to like the middle of this year, it ends at, at a pretty recent point in time, uh, is me following the trail of clues to the subsequent jobs that Black mm-hmm. Cube, this Israeli spy firm, was taking on. And that goes all the way to the Hashogi case and sort of broader international threats to journalists and their doing this work, it appears, they deny it, but it appears for uh, this group NSO, which is an Israeli cyber firm that's designed software that's basically used to hunt journalists. So it, it you know goes to show that, as you say, these kinds of extreme tactics don't stop at any one story. Uh, they are a real threat to the free flow of information and the safety of reporters and sources. And um, you know, I don't know that it's so much to do with the particular administration we have at a given time. Mm-hmm. I think in general we're overdue for a reassessment of what we allow on American soil in terms mm-hmm. of private espionage. Do you think this has, like, changed the track of what you will report on for the rest of your career? Like, did you expect to be reporting on, you know, these kinds of things ultimately? Is this what you expected your career to to look like? Like, how can you go back to reporting on, like, college campus scandals? <laughs> yeah. I mean... <laughs> Uh, the story I'm working on right now is much more national security oriented. I, I think that, you know, I'm an investigative reporter and anytime I have a lead that is a, a big explosive story that people should know about in the interest of public safety or, um, you know, the the freedom of our democracy, uh, I'm there and I'm honored to get those kinds of leads. And for me, on one level, my personal background helped me understand the stakes of this particular issue of sexual violence and how overdue we were for a conversation about it. Um, But on the other hand, it also felt just like any other massive lead that would come my way. It was just a big story backed by big explosive evidence that needed to get out there. So I don't see it as being that distinct from any other beat. Speaking of getting just like a lead, right, and you chasing it, uh, you're... At this point, you know, not just 
a journalist, you're a well-known journalist, you know, almost like, you know, like a celebrity journalist now at this point. And it, what is it like you following a lead? You know, like if you get a story and it's like something's going on in Wisconsin, you know, and you show up in Wisconsin, obviously now people are going to be like, Running Pharaoh's in Wisconsin. <laughs> something something is rotten here. Like, what is going on? Okay, so the politic answer to this is definitely to be like, why no, Ira? I just keep my head down. <laughs> the same as always. You are Brenda Starr reporter, okay? <laughs> the, you know, the work is the work. And to an extent, it is true. Like, my, you know, the fact checkers and editors at the New Yorker don't give a shit. And, you know, I don't. Can we say shit on Keith? You sure yes. can. Oh, God. Okay, I'm going to do it be a lot. Be free. Yeah, say, say. Um, you know, and, and the work. Is is the work, and it's uh, unglamorous in a lot of ways. And um, I still get, you know, the legal threats and the death threats, and like they don't care that there's a, <laughs> I'm a high profile or not. Um, they're just pissed off that I'm doing the reporting. Uh, but on the other hand, like the honest answer is, it is a little bit like those scenes in Harry Potter where, like, everywhere he goes, they're like, "You got a scar on your forehead. <laughs> we know who you are." Uh, so. Yeah, it's it's just a a weird aspect of it to contend with and mostly I would say it is a good thing mm-hmm. where you know it opens some doors and people will pick up the phone uh because I'm a known quantity and and hopefully part of the way in which I'm known is that people feel like they can trust me to keep the confidences of sources and to do meticulous careful reporting of this type. Probably sometimes it carries some baggage that's uh, not a positive, like uh, certain types of people that I would report on uh, get that call and do not pick up the phone or <laughs> hang up very, very quickly when they hear that I'm uh, asking questions. Uh, but I try to focus on the good. When you were meeting a lot of these celebrity women and, and getting into like the most harrowing part of their personal stories and careers, how obligated did you feel to talk about your own personal experience? Like, were they in a way confident to talk to you specifically because, oh, I know who Ronan Farrow is. I know this, you know, fabled story of his life or whatever. So did you feel obligated in a way to divulge more about yourself than maybe the average reporter would have to? You know, it happened naturally that we did have conversations about that. And I didn't feel like it was my place to bring that up so much. Uh, but sources would often go there. And, you know, I talk in the book about how Rose McGowan brought that up and had seen that I'd kind of evolved on this issue of um, becoming more willing to confront uh, my sister's allegation and and I think felt she could trust me as a result of that. Um, you know, Mira Sorvino, there was this moment that I described where we were early in our interviews and she said, you know, I, I've been having like stress dreams about you showing up with a camera on my doorstep and asking me about working with Woody Allen. And I was like, God, it would have never even occurred to me. Of course I don't judge you for that. And, you know, it was a different time and you didn't have access to all the information. And in any case, I'm working as a reporter here. It's completely separate. You know, regardless of your views on that, I would just want to ferret out the facts and treat you as fairly as possible. Um, but, you know, she, she's a very ethical person and very conscientious. So she brought that up and it had been weighing on her. Um, so, you know, I just I try to be open when people want to go there. And uh, like everything else uh, and like we, what we were talking about before, it, it can cut both ways. But I try to draw positive things out of it. 
when the book was published, it was almost immediately like shrouded in a lot of criticism, usually from the people who were committing the crimes that we're speaking you're speaking about in the book. Yeah, the reviews have been uniformly uh, <laughs> glowing, and and fellow yeah, journalists yeah. have uh, corroborated we all the reporting the in it. Yeah, <laughs> we no, love I think the book. The, I think the reaction uh, outside of uh, you know the the thing I get with every story of just powerful interests who don't like being reported on, uh, trying to sue and get a banned. It did get banned in Australia for a few days. So that oh. was glamorous. But that's cleared. Um, that, well, Amazon Australia began selling it again. They were one of the big ones who folded. This is because the editor of the National Enquirer, Mm -hmm. Dylan Howard, does not like all of the reporting about him, uh, covering up the crimes for, uh, for Donald Trump and Harvey Weinstein. Well, that's my news. So watch what you say about the Enquirer. (laughs) Australia is a prison with plants. (laughs) Okay. Let's be nice to Australia. There are many wonderful Australians in this book. Also some not wonderful ones. Uh, but it did open up a conversation about media and accountability, do you feel like we're going to see some change be affected in the future because of this book? Well, it's been really inspiring to see the reporters uh, rallying around this book in such a meaningful way. And that includes reporters at um, AMI, the publisher of the National Enquirer, uh, many of whom are sources in this book and are happy to have this stuff exposed. It includes a lot of great reporters at NBC News. Uh, You know, Chris Hayes has gotten on air and talked about the importance of this reporting and Rachel Maddow has gotten on air and independently confirmed this this reporting and called for accountability there. That's tough. It's tough to speak out against your bosses. Yesterday, the uh, digital journalists of NBC News unionized and they released a statement saying this is partly in protest of the lack of transparency about some of the issues raised in the book, including patterns of secret sexual harassment settlements at the company um, that they're now gradually beginning to acknowledge and um, there's a big push to get people let out of those non-disclosure agreements. So that'll be a long conversation. It's bigger than any one network. Uh, women under non-disclosure agreements at Fox News are launching a similar campaign, also kind of building on the momentum around this book. And uh, I am a reporter, not an activist. I wind up saying that a lot. I think it's an important mm-hmm. distinction. Mm-hmm. So it's not for me to say how that all should shake out. But I'm really moved by and grateful for the activism that seems to be happening around the book. Can I bring up a particular nuisance of mine that comes up when I see people responding to you either directly on like Twitter or Instagram, but just elsewhere, a picture of you will emerge and somebody, usually an older person will say something like he's looking more like Frank every day. How, first of all, it's that thing of like people pretending they thought of it themselves, you know, like this observation, like, I know he looks like Frank Sinatra, whatever. (laughs) But it's like, you didn't think of that. It's unoriginal. And in a way, it's insulting that you probably have to see it. It shows up in the uh, in the book, too. There's there's this great uh, sequence where I'm on the trail of this um, story that AMI, the publisher of The Inquirer, caught and killed, meaning they acquired the rights uh, to the story to, to bury it for Donald Trump. And the story is uh, a Trump Tower doorman who claims he knows from senior sources, and he passed a polygraph test uh, when, he, when he said this, um, that Donald Trump had a, a love child from this affair with his housekeeper years and years ago. And so I'm in this peculiar position of chasing down this story, which maybe is dubious. Who knows? Who cares? The, mm-hmm. the, sto- the headline that matters is there was this transaction and I got the receipts and it was part of a pattern of the Inquirer paying for Trump stories before the election to get rid of them. I mean, it's probably Tiffany. <laughs> <laughs> you remembered Tiffany. No one remembers I Tiffany. I was like a detective. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, but there are all these scenes of like me telling David Remnick about this lead and him going, you're reporting on this? People, people <laughs> yeah. are going to have fun with that. And uh, and then me actually uh, finding the, the father of the supposed love child and saying, look, the story is about violations of election law and this transaction. It's not about your family, but I just want to give you a chance to weigh in however you want because I've kind of been there. <laughs> like, I want to be respectful. I don't want to draw you in more than necessary. Um, and we have this funny conversation where I say that of like, I, you know, I have a lot of empathy for what you're going through. And he's like, oh, I know. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you do? He's like, yeah, you're Pharaoh. And then like, he's the one giving me the sympathetic look. <laughs> so I was just wondering if that, like, does it annoy you to have to see that all the time? Like I mean, to have to I, deal with it? I'm sure every day. I have to deal with so much worse than that. I, I mean, <laughs> that is definitely true. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's not a, a death threat or a blackmail threat or, a, you know, the lawsuit threat. Um, I'm good. I'm good with all the, the weird stuff that's not hostile. <laughs> Uh, going back to something you were saying about when you were talking with Mira, uh, it got me thinking about the weird interconnectedness of, you know, Hollywood and politics, um, that it's still so hard to untangle, you know, so much in the book you talk about how Weinstein was involved in the Clinton campaign, you know, early on, and people were like, Mm -hmm. oh, you shouldn't get involved with him, and like, you even mentioned at a point, um... The Meryl Streep stuff, right? You know, and um, I, I like that you mentioned that, you know, I think she was unfairly sort of attacked, especially with that, like, um, that art installation. Being oh, yeah, like, she, she knew. knew. Uh, but you do also mention, you know, that she and Woody share a publicist, you know? And I just wonder, like, how much should we care about ways that we can untangle sort of conflicts of interest, especially in Hollywood, you know? It's like, here's Meryl Streep, uh, a woman who, you know, works with me too, you know, like wants progressiveness in Hollywood, but also her publicist is a person who tried to discredit your sister. Yeah, I mean, her her publicist is absolutely one of the worst examples in the industry of like, you know, she'll ban people from can screenings if they report on allegations of sex crimes against her clients. You know, she'll use her, you know, starry client list to as bait to try to, um, you know, get people to plant negative items smearing women. I mean, she's a real, cla- Leslie Dart is her name. She's just like the classic archetype of the kind of anti-woman uh, publicist who's kind of very amoral and willing to do whatever to protect a powerful client. And that's a that's an archetype that shows up again and again. You know, Lisa Bloom, this right. crusader for women's rights lawyer who winds up also working for Harvey Weinstein um, and sort of is a double agent in the plot. Um, and I realize much too late that she's sort of informing him. Yeah, one point you raised there is there's just an incestuous world of uh, people with compromised eth- <laughs> ethics, and they show up over and over again in, in law and politics and Hollywood. Uh, and I don't know that you can do anything to disentangle that, as you say, except hold people accountable when they're hurting people. This is a really simple question, but I just want to know personally, after going through and doing all these work, you've been doing this for two years, focusing on this. How are you feeling how are like <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean literally how are you feeling you're, you're having to do all this press stuff having to you know talk about your book over and over again how are you How's I'm like running? I'm staring at you like does not compute <laughs> <laughs> like, what, what is this question yeah. he refuses to feel he can't <laughs> especially because all of your work is you know I'm here to present the facts yeah how are you feeling thank you I feel like Meghan Markle here <laughs> <laughs> true somebody princess. asked how I'm feeling <laughs> uh, it is true it has been a 
a very kind of high octane period of not a lot of sleep, uh, not a lot of self care, um, sort of breathlessly going from one story to another, and and very fully being consumed by wanting to get the facts right and fair and get them out into the world. Um, uh, John will probably eventually force me to take a vacation. Mm. He has extracted a promise that I not write another book for at least a year. <laughs> uh, Sometimes in this book, when I'm listening to like the descriptions of him being like, "Oh, you're off working again," or whatever, I just picture him with like curlers, being like, "You know, <laughs> there he goes, <laughs> work again." John played by Claire Foy. <laughs> totally. Oh, please, perfect casting, dream Who casting. Who would play you? Because I feel like a bombshell version of this book is going to come out. Is it going to be Charlize? She could do it. Oh my god, I would love that. <laughs> you know, she could do it. Meryl could do anything. Like Meryl. It's Meryl's part uh, if she wants. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's I get asked a lot about uh, adaptation rights too, which I guess is you know it's not something I brought up, but I guess it's sort of built into the material that it mm-hmm. has um, something of a cinematic quality to it, and the events were sort of stranger than fiction. Uh, I was so focused on getting the reporting right that I have just told everyone over and over again, like, I got to do two years of reporting, and then later I can think about all that. But if any of those fine folks you mentioned uh, (laughs) would like to play me, then I'm all in. (laughs) Well, good. I'm glad you're at least going to be in a place where you're doing better. Yeah, I I, uh, thank you for the question, sincerely. And uh, I think, you know, I don't endorse the kind of no sleep, no self-care lifestyle that Mm -hmm. is uh, characteristic of me in a lot of the plot of this book. Uh, And I'm conscious of the fact that I need to take care of myself too. On the other hand, you know, I think this was an extraordinary period of time where I was in a position of privilege to be in receipt of these leads and this kind of evidence. And I just kind of had to go for it and do right by those circumstances. And that did mean losing some sleep. Now, Ira, I have a question for you. Okay. Do you know who Ronan Farrow's grandmother is? I don't know. Should I? I probably do. Yes, you should. I, yeah. probably, I probably do. <laughs> That's what the look on Lewis's face is. <laughs> right. she, she, she made some like notable cameos later on, but she was Jane in the Tarzan movie. She was. That's oh. true. I wish more people knew things like this. This is, this is the investigative work I do. <laughs> you know what? Respect and uh, Turner Classic Movies, again, make sure you're subscribed because yeah. she's, she's on there all the time. Uh, yeah, she not only was Jane in the Tarzan movies, but was one of the big MGM stars of the time, which meant... They, she was on a contract and she did whatever they wanted as often as they wanted and she's in like hundreds of movies. Right. It's crazy. She was in like all those, you know, Greta Garbo period pieces. What's Anna her name? Karenina, Maureen O'Sullivan. She's mm. a wonderful actress. Mm-hmm. Black people don't care about Tarzan movies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think Johnny M- Weissmuller would work for you. Oh, like, oh, look at this white person running through Africa <laughs> saving the world. He's a swimmer, respect. <laughs> I, have, I haven't gone back to those movies to see how they hold up in a, uh, a woke cultural setting. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> speaking, of, speaking of movies... You had a lot of rude things to say about Jackie in this book. <laughs> that is so true. I was. I, well, let me tell you something. I run with the, a crowd that stands Jackie, and I am not a fan of the movie, especially the Billy Crudup scenes where he just straight up looked in Jackie Onassis' eyes and was like, "Hey, dumbass, challenge me with your yeah, whatever." It's a it's a very weird movie. I don't want to compliment Noah Offenheim, and I would really just sort of you know like put a lot of what I love on the director. Uh, I love him. Yes, but. I don't know. It feels like a modern Strindberg, you know? It's like oh, she's up. wandering this house. <laughs> it's a bit ghost sonata. What? That's L- one scene. Louis's Lu- yeah. point is interesting. It is, it is a m- movie that evinces some sort of weird views about women at times. 
But actually, in the full conversations, uh, I kind of defend Jackie. I talk a lot about how the score is great. Sure. Michael Levy. Mika Levy? Do we know how to say her name? She's great, though. Mm-hmm. She scored uh, Under the Skin, which, which is, is an amazing movie. A favorite. Best. Yeah. Honestly, everyone should should watch Under the Skin. It's phenomenal. Uh, but the score is particularly great, and the score to Jackie is a standout, I think. Uh, the direction is beautiful. As you said, it's beautifully photographed. Natalie Portman is wonderful, as always. I don't know about that. Go oh, ahead. interesting. She yeah. does what she has to do, Lewis. I think she gives Jackie a, like, a prototype pedophile voice. I like Natalie. (laughs) I think she's generally very talented. You won't hear a word against Natalie from me. She's been very supportive of Catch and Kill. Um, (laughs) She's a wonderful person. I just I question that performance. Didn't love Vox Lux either. Doing great work for Times (laughs) Up. (laughs) (laughs) Only going to hear nice things about Natalie from me. But uh, but yes, I mean that that was just a case where uh, you find these uh, pieces of gold in the in the actual tranches of reporting material on the real life events, and and sometimes it's in the same way in a writer's room if you were doing fiction you're like oh that's a runner uh, it, you find that in the reality is that something you want to do by the way fiction because reading this it's so engrossing I feel like you could write a novel why thank you uh, I am busy now and have promised uh my partner no that books. I will not do books no for books some for time. Fuck John Lovett. So, <laughs> so uh, I'll pass on to him that you're you're interfering with that. Tell him I said it. Okay, good. That'll carry some weight. That might get me out of book prison. <laughs> Tied him over with a new pair of cuff sweats. He'll let it go. I do want to say that the moment in the book, um, you know, like the sentence marriage on the moon or even here on earth was very beautiful and touching. Thank you. Um, and, you know, I think you know that I, I love both of you. Um, and you know this book and everything that you've done uh, just really honored to call you a friend thank you yeah. I'm, you honored, I'm honored that you would come on this show I'm so, we're such dorks and uh, only Aida is here to anchor us in any level I'm of gravitas and seriousness yeah Aida uh, thank you for having me thank you all of you yes, for having such me such a pleasure to meet you this is, we were overdue to do this, and uh, I feel like we could just talk about the movie stuff for hours and nothing else. We lost track of the important thing here, which is Death on the Nile. That's true. <laughs> I, I feel bad about that. Simon uh. McCorkendale, lost hottie of the 70s. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that is a deep cut. Yeah. I, I do not even recall the IMDb on that movie <laughs> as closely as you do. We didn't even bring up The Great Gatsby. I, see, I haven't done my report. Is I haven't the, done my work. Is there a remake coming? Of what? Death on the Nile? Yes, yeah. Starring but, who? I, I mean, it's, it's not announced yet, but okay. Kenneth Branagh's doing it. Yeah. Mm, well, right. Yeah. Did did we like his murder on the Orient Express? I personally fucking hated it. Right I now. fell the fuck asleep on a plane. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I'm gonna be politic and not weigh in on this one. I liked his Thor movie. I got. I got. Yeah. It. Me too. Me too. Yeah. Well, I his Hamlet is amazing. Oh yes. yes. His yeah. Hamlet is amazing. Like not watched often enough. Great score. I'm a I'm a score nerd. You're picking up on this. Yeah. But Patrick Doyle's like does his best work in that movie. Um. It's great. And it's he's great in the movie I Hate, My, My Week with Marilyn. I, it's a very uh, good uh, Laurence Olivier impersonation, his mentor, famously. Yeah. But anyway, thank you for being here, Ronan. Yeah. Thank you for it's being here. It's been a delight. Yes. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. <laughs> hey, this is Jeff Lewis from Radio Andy. Live and uncensored, catch me talking with my friends about my latest obsessions, relationship issues, and bodily ailments. With that kind of drama that seems to follow me, you never know what's going to happen. 
You can listen to Jeff Lewis live at home or anywhere you are. Download the SiriusXM app for over 425 channels of ad-free music, sports, entertainment, and more. Subscribe now and get three months free. Offer details apply. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Guys, it's been a rough year going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst but we have a better idea for you which is pick out something from the crooked store the store is stocked with tons of new merch it's perfect for the spring and classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship depending on how things go pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year or a hat celebrating your favorite pod go to crooked.com store to shop On Monday evening, director Martin Scorsese elaborated on the interview that he gave to Empire Magazine in early October, where he said that he didn't feel like Marvel movies weren't cinema. He called them amusement park rides, theme parks. Uh, He wrote a op-ed for the New York Times Mm -hmm. where he basically explains, and he, he said that in superhero movies, nothing's at risk. And cinema is an art form that is supposed to bring you the unexpected. I initially thought his comments were funny. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was just going to say something. Right. I'm sorry, it is funny to call them theme park yeah. rides. Like Chris Evans, a theme park ride. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought it was funny when I made my joke too uh, about his movies. Of course, the white men of film Twitter were aghast um, because you're not you're not allowed to make any jokes on Twitter ever. Um, and I've just always found the entire situation amusing. Mm-hmm. I would have never expected Scorsese to like Marvel movies in the first place if he'd been like, oh, you know, I really, really love Ant-Man and the Wasp. <laughs> um, but also, him not liking him doesn't denigrate my enjoyment of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to sit down watching Endgame being like, oh, Marty wouldn't like this. Right. You it know? feels like the backlash to this was inspired by people feeling insulted and not by... Uh, 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 the categorical definition of what he said. You know what I mean? It's uh-huh. just like, I feel like people are routinely just defensive about liking these things when it's like, mm-hmm. they're gigantic entertainments. Like, you, why be defensive? It, it, it It's what's being served, you know? True. Uh, I will offer that I'm annoyed by people who are overly defensive, but I'm also annoyed by the people on the other side who, when Scorsese made his comments, basically it's just, a full-on assault of, yeah, I'm right, Marvel movies suck, they've uh-huh. always sucked, etc. It's like there's extremes on both sides that are very annoying. Uh, and I was glad that he 
elaborated in what I thought was a very beautiful op-ed about where cinema is now. Yeah, I think the part that I really enjoyed was that he says that if he had been younger and these movies were coming out while he was, you know, coming into cognizance that he would have probably enjoyed these movies for their experience. But one, you could read that as, are you implying that, you know, liking Marvel has this inherent immaturity? Or two, are you just saying that culture and the things that you like, the things that you are fanatical about are what is given to you, you know? So I'm going to go with the latter. I think that that's what he's saying. I don't really think at any point he says that they're innately bad, Mm -hmm. but just that they're not for him. So how can you be mad at him for that, you know? Mm -hmm. No, I mean, for instance, uh, uh, when Madonna came out, she was dismissed as whatever, insignificant music, pop fluff or whatever. And now I would call her like my definitive singer-songwriter. Like, that's what I grew up with. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. For instance, YouTube stars do not speak to me. Mm -hmm. I don't, like, when I see, like, uh, you know, one of those videos going viral that has, like, 60 million hits, and we talked about that makeup guy a few months ago. James Charles? Yes, James Charles. Like, like, that's not even the language I speak. I can't even begin to talk about that as legitimate entertainment or whatever. It's just not for me. And I feel like that's where Scorsese is coming from on this. But I thought the best point he made was that there is something particular about these gigantic studio tent poles, which is that they are so crowd tested and retested and perfectly calibrated to a specific taste that there is almost no risk in them in a mm-hmm. certain way. I think that is the core of what he is talking about with this issue. Absolutely. I would liken it to the morning show, which we talked about. Yes. You know, I would liken it to a lot of early pop music that we grew up with, to be honest, you know, uh, I get those criticisms of a Madonna, you know, say of a Britney, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I think that what happened, particularly with Madonna, is her career became riskier. Yeah, right. Than it would have initially been. And maybe we're in an era where Marvel movies will become riskier later on, you know? Um, we don't know where movies are going. Um, For my point, I agreed with him. You know, my favorite comic book movies are films like Blade, you know, Mm -hmm. Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies, um, Tim Burton's Batman movies, um, Donner's Superman. You know, Mm -hmm. I feel like Marvel movies, DC movies, comic book movies, pre this whole Iron Man becoming so popular and then cinematic universes being created mm-hmm. um, to sort of market everywhere around the globe. I feel like comic book movies used to have a sort of risk in them, you know, because we didn't get them all the time. And sometimes they would fail and sometimes you wouldn't see one again. But it's like no current Marvel movie, as much as I enjoy them, is ever given me the thrill of like watching something like Michelle Pfeiffer's performance in Batman Returns. You know, yeah. that has risk in it. That felt dangerous And to me. strange, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. I almost think that maybe the action films or the superhero movies have gotten formulaic to a point where I think most recently with the end, I really enjoyed the character arc that they gave to Thanos. You know, they they gave us some texture to him, but even then it was very minimum. Like they were just giving us the the, the least that they could. So I wonder if... What it really is is that I would love to see like a superhero art house film. Mm-hmm. You know, something that shows intent. The Joker? Yeah. <laughs> there we go. At least the, at least in The Joker, you you could sympathize with him. And you mm-hmm. felt like, okay, I, I see what you're getting at. I see what the point of this is. There's nuance to your character. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I don't... If anything, Scorsese's op-ed did make me appreciate 
the Joker more, if only because I appreciate what Warner Brothers allowed Todd Phillips to do. Do I think that Todd Phillips is the Joker is a good movie? No. Mm -hmm. Would I have preferred that someone else do it? Yes. But for what it stood for and letting someone do that, at least felt more interesting to me than here is another movie like the one you've seen before. Right, right. The formulaicness is definitely a huge part of it. I mean, uh, I enjoyed... Sorry, what's that animated Spider-Man that came out last Into night? Into the Spider-Verse. Into the Spider-Verse. See, that was a movie where I really loved the first 10 minutes of it specifically because it was about that guy's family life and, uh, uh, you know, you, you were just immediately immersed in his existence in a splashy, colorful way. And then, the I'll say the last 10 minutes of the movie, it really is... A, any animated fight you would kind of see, which is not bad, and, mm-hmm. and it, it isn't at times uh, super entertaining. And Catherine Hahn voices a villain in a comic book movie, which let us never forget. Miss <laughs> Fletcher is here. Um, but uh, 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 it is hard for me to look over when things turn into exactly what you expect, which is a big climactic fight, which mm-hmm. is what these all turn into. Yes, which was honestly one of my criticisms of Black Panther. Which I think is such a fantastic film. A perfect case until... of it starts off in the first half hour. I'm like, yes, it, this is its own world. It's not copying anything, and mm-hmm. then inevitably it has to copy something. Yeah, you know. Uh, which is not to say that there aren't some of those criticisms to levy against Scorsese himself. Oh yeah, you know, because um, he calls he says these films like you know it's they're remakes in spirit. Uh, I would argue that. First of all, The Departed is a remake. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two, we've gone to like a lot of the same well with thematic um, storytelling, you know, in a lot of Scorsese's films. But you know, they are different. Um, I'm not comparing them yeah. to Marvel doing that. You know, I'm not saying Goodfellas and Casino. Or, you know, are like that climatic fight at the end of a superhero movie. Oh my, but, I mean, Scorsese. I mean, like, how many times do we need to see twelve? Um, profane men and mm-hmm. one woman. Mm-hmm. You right. Know? <laughs> you know, uh, I was also very interested in the cinema he did talk about. Um, I liked, first off, when he talked about theme parks, he said, or the in the films of Alfred Hitchcock, I suppose you could say that Hitchcock was his own franchise, that he was our franchise, that a new picture was like an event. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is what I meant when I made the joke about Scorsese and Tarantino films being franchises. You know, mm-hmm. I wasn't being literal. I was just mm-hmm. joking about those movies are events. Right. You know? Right. They started out as directors who were smaller making weird films. And they're still fantastic, amazing directors, but also their movies are now events. A new Tarantino movie, a new Scorsese movie, they are events. They're just like Spielberg in that sense. Well, I mean, Hitchcock in particular is kind of like a roller coaster because there's like a kind of dread to how much of a thrill you'll experience. Like how how deep will this go? How intense will this be? You don't know what you're going to experience by the time you get off it other than it will probably be overwhelming. So I think that's a fair comparison to make. Uh-huh. Uh, then there were the other films that he talked about he grew up with, like The Steel Helmet and It's Always Fair Weather and Persona. I do like Persona. No, Persona speaks to me. I actually yes. haven't seen the other two. Yes, but. Um, Scorpio Rising, uh, The Killers. He is, he is a big old dork. I he mean, is. Like, I, I kind of do appreciate that about him. He's very good at talking about movies, too. Yeah. But this, this conversation also reminds me of, do you remember when Roger Ebert was sort of obsessed with the idea that um, video games aren't art? Yes. And uh, it, it's weird. It's like, 
there is a value in having a categorical conversation about these things, but it sort of feels more like an opportunity for people to be insulted. Yes. <laughs> when it's when it's just it's like not germane really. You know? Yes. It's sure. You don't think video games are art. Do we need to have that conversation? Yeah, right. That's like a funny. subjective thing. I think also these men who make these kind of, you know, retroactive arguments about what is art and what is cinema, they run the risk of sounding out of touch. Totally. You know, mm-hmm. because what Marvel can afford to us now is amazing industrial budgets where they can do all these cool CGI things. The final scene in the last Avengers movie is one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. That's something that Scorsese could never do because he's not going to use that. He's not going to use that technology for one of his films. So it's like apples and oranges. It's a totally different conversation to be had. I mean, it took a lot of technology to make Robert De Niro look 15 in The Irishman. <laughs> or however old he looked. Oh yeah, right. I, we, that's that's not out yet, right? I'm, no, it's not out. The, yeah. the that's a Netflix. We, we, yeah, we have not seen the Irishman yet. We will be talking about Scorsese again I will when it say, comes out. Yes. I, oh yeah, that's true. I do stand Joe Pesci. The conversation before these mar- like is Marvel cinema was is Netflix are Netflix movies cinema? Are Netflix movies really do they deserve to be in the canon of great movies? Are Netflix TV shows TV shows, right. etc. Exactly. And now look. He has a movie that's coming out on Netflix. So it's really just, I can't wait until he directs the next Marvel film. And then we're going to have to double back and be like, what were you talking about, Martine? Uh, so, you know, there's something to be said, too, about filmmakers growing up watching these films and what kind of stories they're going to tell. Um, the one part I really agreed with is just the fact that these movies do overcrowd cinemas, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and it's harder to see any other kind of film. However, I don't know the full extent of that because we live in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And we can see basically any movie that's released. Um, we'll either see it at the Arclight or the Landmark or a Guild screening. It's it, yeah. it, it, it fills me with the same feeling as the idea that there will always be live TV and we'll always need TVs thanks to the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. It's like, I guess I'm thankful for that, but that's also so not for me. So mm-hmm. I feel disenfranchised anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And as someone who is still like, you know, I had just fresh out the Midwest, people don't really show out for movies unless it's a big Marvel film. Like yeah. people aren't going to go see a Martin Scorsese film from where I'm from yeah. in middle America. So it's I see why they have their place, but I do think you're right that we've kind of crowded the market. Mm-hmm. How many films were in the last, 22 Marvel films? I would argue that they would see a film like The Departed or something like that, and especially people who grew up on those films. Mm -hmm. But going to the movies in general is sort of an awful experience, depending (laughs) on what theater you go to. Yeah, right. Yeah, it can be. I I don't mind spending the money on a ticket at the Arclight because it's at least enjoyable to see a film there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you might run into like Melanie Griffith in the lobby. Yeah. Happened to be once. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah. Imagine me, Lewis, just encountering an actress in the wild. It's a shocking idea, and you should be afraid for her. Well, I'm terrified. you know that I used to work at Barnes & Noble, like yeah. you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked at Wait, Barnes & Noble. Wait, did we all work at Barnes & Noble? You too? too? Yes, when I was really young, like 17, 18, yeah. Yes. Back in Nebraska. <laughs> this is the, the trifecta. This is the theme of this podcast now. <laughs> wow. Jilted former Barnes & Noble queer oh, workers. Oh, my yes. goodness. I worked at the Barnes & Noble back in Milwaukee. I worked at the one on Astor Place in New York, and... I worked at the one in the Grove. It was my first job here in LA when I moved here in 2011. It's just a summer job. I encountered Melanie Griffith when she came to purchase some books. Melanie Griffith is out there participating in the culture. She came with her books 
And I asked if she wanted to sign up for the Barnes and Noble member club, and she said, oh, "We're already members." Hell yeah! And then she gave me a number. I typed it in, and the membership she was using was Antonio Banderas. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I will not hear a better story this month. <laughs> wow. That speaks to me a lot. I was shook. By the way, his new movie's really good, Pain and Glory. Pain and Glory yeah. is amazing. Pain and Glory, his best performance. Amadovar, one of my favorite directors. Totally, totally. Yes. And there's lots of casual heroin use. Yes. Get ready. Where is Amadovar's essay about Marvel movies? Right. I'm waiting. I bet it would be beautiful and full of color. Yes. yes. <laughs> when we're back, keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It's Keep It. The evil segment. <laughs> keep it. It's not, keep it. I find it sinister. Halloween is over. Yeah, okay, true. It's November, what, 5th? Yeah. yeah. Ew, right. take that elsewhere. I've been, told, I've been told to keep it. Yeah. <laughs> we're six seconds in. My keep it is on Lewis this week. <laughs> My keep it is on Rosario Dawson and her family's alleged transphobia. And I only say alleged because the the case is still pending and I don't want to say things about cis that aren't true or whatever. But Dedrick Finley is a trans man who has come out and accused the Rosario, Rosario Dawson and her family of physically, emotionally abusing, abusing him. So pretty much what happened is Dedrick was working for... Rosario Dawson's family are doing construction and in the process was transitioning. So is now a trans man and goes by he, him. The family continued to misgender him and then actually physically abused him is what he's saying. So, yeah, keep it on all that nonsense, especially because Rosario Dawson during Pride 2018 came out as a queer person. So it doesn't make sense to me that you can get you you don't get to cherry pick your allyship. You don't like it's not LGBT and then like LGB and then stop, you know? If you're in a marginalized community, you have to check for everybody in that marginalized community. I don't know why Rosario doesn't get that, if this is true. Also, you are dating Cory Booker. So of course both camps have been entirely silent on this. And if this is true, this is really disappointing to hear about Rosario. That's it. I do enjoy her, generally speaking. It upsets me. Yeah. Also, and Cory Booker, our next president, what's going on there? Oh. <laughs> you sound as hopeful as Pete Buttigieg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you dream a lot in your sleep. <laughs> a wishful thinking. Um, so frustrating. I, this is just like rent. My question is, how did Rosario Dawson end up in this? <laughs> <laughs> I actually... I'm glad to get more context on the story now because initially when I heard that Rosario had attacked an employee, my first thought was, well, what celebrities don't attack their employees? Uh, <laughs> I would be honored if Naomi Campbell threw a phone at me. So That means hello. You know? Uh, but I guess Rosario Dawson isn't quite Naomi Campbell, uh-uh. right? You know? Yeah. Nor is it justified. Because if Naomi Campbell hit me, I deserved it. I don't know what I did, but I deserved it. If Rosario Dawson hits you, you're like, ma'am, make better choices. Chill. 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 (laughs) So, yeah, that's the disappointing Dawson news. Graham. What can you do? Yeah, I do not. That story is really horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. All right, you're looking at me. I'm looking at Mm -hmm. you, Lewis. All right, I'll have a keep it, too. Uh, my keep it is to a movie that I actually initially thought was getting better reviews than it has gotten, but it is to Jojo Rabbit, 
which is the new Taika Waititi movie. And by the way, I love him. I saw What We Do in the Shadows. Hilarious. Had no idea it was going to be hilarious. I love Taika Waititi. Yeah, he's cute as hell. Yeah, I he's... profiled him for GQ. He's so nice. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. He's from New Zealand, which is, I think, a, uh, 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 an unproblematic country. I'll say it. Um, but okay, this movie is... Well, they call themselves Kiwis, so I don't know. Never mind, that's a little, that's, it's a little cloying. It's offensive. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to the fruits. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> um, so this movie is basically a Wes Anderson movie grafted onto Nazi Germany. And uh, I think it's sort of for people who think, you know, Hitler jokes are still pretty naughty. But in fact... It feels to me about as risky as a New Yorker cartoon. Just like, oh, Hitler said something droll. You know, it's just not that interesting to me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But anyway, it's about this young Nazi who's like six years old, and he thinks he's like a hardcore Nazi, and he imagines Hitler as his imaginary friend. So Hitler is this like wild kook who he, you know, is corresponding with. And as the movie goes on, his relationship with Hitler changes. But ultimately, it's a movie that wants to be really funny, but I think the juxtaposition of youthful ebullience and Hitler Nazi world, I, th- I think that uh, novelty wears off rather quickly and it feels like one joke for the entire movie. Meanwhile, something else about this movie upsets me, which is that Scarlett Johansson plays his mom. I don't dislike Scar jo as an actress, but I will say this particular performance feels engineered for best supporting actress in a couple of ways. One, those kinds of winning roles usually have a specific arc, which is that They have one character building scene and then they kind of disappear so that there's an air of mystery about these characters. And then we think about them afterwards, even though they had one small moment. ScarJo is not in this movie much, but the movie still feels structured around her in a particular awards getting way. Also, something I don't like about this movie is that Thomas and Mackenzie, who is the girl in the movie Leave No Trace, if you saw that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She talks a little bit like Bjork, so I just instinctively like her. But she plays a Jew that uh, this little boy is forced to become friends with. And it's a meaty part and that she's in the movie a lot, but she still doesn't get enough to do. Mm. So I feel like it's it becomes a stagnant movie. And within the first five minutes of Jojo Rabbit, you know what you're getting for the rest of the time. And I think that ultimately makes it uh, a way more disappointing movie than I was expecting, given the fact that lots of awards pundits are talking about this movie. And also, who likes saying the words Jojo Rabbit out loud? I don't. Mm-hmm. I find it annoying. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, I have not seen Jojo Rabbit yet, and so stay tuned. Yeah. Yeah, nor have I, but the trailers I saw, I was already disgusted and put off. I just, I'm done with the Nazi stuff. I'm done with the Hitler stuff. I don't think you can make it comical anymore without it being boring. Mm -hmm. So, which is exactly what your strife is with it. So that makes total sense. I would compare it to if you saw the movie Death of Stalin last year, which was basically like an episode of Veep grafted onto Stalin. Um you get over the the connection between atrocity and whimsical humor rather quickly. It, it becomes a one-panel comic that you're stuck in for 100 minutes. All right. Well, my keep it is not to a film per se, but it is to the Academy itself. Oh, the Academy. Those are my best friends. Why would you do this? Well, they fucked up, Lewis. Okay. Uh, the Academy has disqualified Nigeria's entry, Lionheart, from competing in Best International Feature Film. Uh, the film is from actress-turned-director Jean-Viev Naji, and apparently, because the film is in English, it is disqualified from the category, which until recently was Best Foreign Language Film. Right. 
it is weird because the primary language in Nigeria is English. Correct. So it just calls into question a lot of the qualifications for best international film, you know? I feel like there's almost no way they won't correct that after this. I mean, yeah. it's absurd. That makes no sense. Yeah. And it's not Im- an important qualification. That implies that English belongs to America or the Americas, or North America at least. That doesn't make sense to me. That's like deliberately mm. exclusionary. And I feel like the change to best international film from best foreign language film was a step in the right direction. Right. But then it just reminds me, like, of course, we never, we never really have English films like from the UK, mm-hmm. compete in best foreign language. Do we? Maybe that's ex- yes. why the category was structured that way. It's best international. Yeah. So we don't have any more King speeches winning? <laughs> oh, yeah. Woof. What a tough year for me. <laughs> I shouldn't fall asleep during a best picture. <laughs> uh, Even with Helena in it. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, that's my keep it, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like... Yours are both pretty unobjectionable. Good keep it's both of you. Yeah. Thank you. you know, I just feel like if this isn't corrected, then... Nigeria is never able to submit for an Oscar ever again. Right. You know? That's abujit. That was me putting the word Abuja, the capital of Nigeria, into bullshit. Right. If you recall that Alfonso Cuaron said that Roma, he did not consider it a foreign language film, which, no. I mean, just the concept of saying foreign language film was always dumb. Yeah, (laughs) right. So, best international works for me. Right. And then fix it so Lionheart can get... At it's least nice, yeah. um, consider to be nominated. I'll, I'll consider this a necessary kink to work out before the category straightens itself. The right. discourse we needed. Yes. Yes. The discourse we don't deserve, but the discourse we needed. What and the other discourses should have did. I mean, it is <laughs> better than the film discourse about whether or not Harriet <laughs> it has um, white saviors in it. Oh, yeah. If you saw that on I still the haven't internet. seen Harriet yet, by the way. I haven't seen Harriet yet either. Um, but apparently she's a psychic in the film. <laughs> uh, but that is just Casey Lemons's, you know, she did ease by you. Of course, the film's going to be like kooky and weird. Uh, but I guess, yeah, sideways keep it is that people have not seen the movie and based on a single review have decided that there's a white savior in the film and that there's an evil black bounty hunter who's the villain. Mm. And everyone who's seen the movie and reviewed it said that is not true. So, All right, well, let's quash that right here. Yeah, it's a little bit like when everyone was talking about Slave Play and hadn't seen it. Right. But so you go know, see we, Harriet. But see. you need to talk about things online. Go see Harriet or don't because all the reviews are bad. Okay. And Parasite and Castle Rock, of course. But if you want to talk about something... Go see it. Want to have an opinion online and be mad? I'm going to go see it. <laughs> that, that does give me life sometimes. Yeah. The best Harriet thing ever still is on 30 Rock when Octavia Spencer was playing Harriet <laughs> and she refused to walk in from one side and she goes, you better figure out a way for Harriet Tubman to walk through walls. It's <laughs> 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 the funniest line reading ever. Ah. Uh. Anyway, thanks again to Ronan Farrell for being here and we will see you next week. Keep It is a product of Crooked Media. Caroline Rustin is our producer. It's Caroline like the princess, the one you don't care about. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Nadine Melkonian, for filming and editing our video content every week. 
Hey, this is Jeff Lewis from Radio Andy. Live and uncensored, catch me talking with my friends about my latest obsessions, relationship issues, and bodily ailments. With that kind of drama that seems to follow me, you never know what's going to happen. You can listen to Jeff Lewis live at home or anywhere you are. Download the SiriusXM app for over 425 channels of ad-free music, sports, entertainment, and more. Subscribe now and get three months free. Offer details apply.